and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the ER Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Tina Quinn. It's a pleasure as always to have your company. For the last 17 years, Fran Kelly's is the voice that informed Australians start their day to. The host of Radio National Breakfast since 2005, Fran has made the program one which sets the daily news agenda, providing authoritative analysis of major events and issues both at home and abroad. Fran started her career in journalism in community radio at Triple R in Melbourne. After moving to Sydney in the late 1980s, she joined Triple J before beginning what would become a very long relationship with ABC Radio National as a reporter for the public broadcaster's flagship current affairs programs, AM and PM. She spent over a decade in Canberra filing for Radio National Breakfast and the 7.30 report before a spell in London as the ABC's Europe correspondent. She returned to Australia in 2005 to take over as host of RN Breakfast from Peter Thompson. Last month, a very emotional Fran announced that after 17 years, it was time to catch up on some sleep and that she would be stepping down as host of RN Breakfast. Today was her last day, marking the end of an incredible era for the program. She very kindly joined us in studio at 2SER earlier in the week to discuss her decades-long career and to reflect on her time at the helm of what she calls the best job in journalism. Fran Kelly, an especially warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Tina, lovely to be here. Thank you. Given where we are, it's appropriate to start with a question about community radio. You got your start in journalism, volunteering at Triple R in Melbourne. Tell me what that experience was like, but also... Why you why you feel you went the distance? Because there's a lot of young aspiring journo's uh, who get their start in community radio, but they they certainly they certainly haven't gone on to enjoy the the sort of career that you have. Well, I was lucky, I suppose. I had a mentor. The reason I was attracted to community radio was because um, a, a woman I knew a friend, and a few few people actually were doing something that was really dynamic on Triple R in Melbourne where I lived and it was a show called Talking Headlines Mm -hmm. and it was a new way of doing the news that we hadn't heard before and it was young and it was vibey and and I really, it caught my interest and it really made me think about journalism in a way that hadn't been in my consciousness before. Um, And then one of those people, Helen Thomas, uh, experienced journalist, a good friend, basically you know, introduced me to radio. She got me into Triple R. She taught me the ropes. We ended up having a, a Sunday morning show about women's issues, you know, mm-hmm. so a current affairs show really. I suppose it was my introduction to radio called Backchat. And um, she just taught me the ropes. And she, as I say, she's an experienced journalist. She went off to, you know, she was working on the National Times at, at that time. And um, she eventually moved to Sydney to mm-hmm. start a a new program on on Triple J called The Drum, mm-hmm. and eventually it took me a long time because I had absolutely no chops whatsoever. It took me a long time, but I did get a gig, a three-month gig on The Drum. So I moved to Sydney to do that, and it was an tr- incredible training ground thrown mm-hmm. right into live interviewing of politicians and things like that. Really, I suppose, set up the template for what I then went on to do in life. So I was just lucky. It wasn't that I was particularly more you know, ambitious or, or anything. I was lucky I had a mentor mm-hmm. and um, it just helped focus me. 
And you said that you hadn't really considered journalism before. It was your introduction to journalism. When did you, when did it sort of, the light bulb sort of go off for you when it came to, oh, okay, this is what I, what well, I want to do? it's sort of a funny story, which I'll bore you all with. When I left school, I applied to be a journalist on The Advertiser in Adelaide. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was only... Um, one position going for a cadet journalist and I got down to the last two and I didn't get the job. I, I kid you not, I forgot about it then completely. It never really re-emerged in my consciousness and I never thought about it and I wasn't particularly a news hound or mm-hmm. anything. I was, you know, I was political and I was engaged mm-hmm. in all the big debates of the time but um, I wasn't interested in that at all and I went on to, to really, I worked at universities and events management and put on concerts and festivals, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And then I went overseas at the end of a, 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 a big job I'd had organising a festival and took a long break. And really then it suddenly became clear to me that I really wanted a job with this particular kind of meaning in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I resolved to come back and try and get into journalism, which I did. And it took me uh, quite a long time. It took me a year and a half before I got my break. But yeah. um, I did get it. I was lucky. And, you know, I, I, when I first started journalism, I thought, wow, I'm home. This is it. And do you think do you think coming to journalism in your late twenties with a range of experiences already under your belt? You know, you you were an activist and an advocate. You'd worked in within the music industry. You were even uh, the front girl for a punk band called uh, Toxic Shock. Um, Probably new waves better. New but, wave, you know, new wave punk. Yeah, new wave punk. Great. A feminist rock band. We were a feminist rock band in the late seventies, early eighties. Was that yeah. around the yeah? yeah. And uh, do you think? I mean, having those range of experiences under your belt maybe gave you a bit of a leg up in a sense in compared to a lot of other young journos starting out straight out of school? I don't think it gave me a leg up, but I think it's, you know, obvious, totally obvious to, to everyone that it that life experience makes you a better journalist. Mm. Um, and so I, I, in a way, I think it was, I was fortunate to come to journalism late because I did have some experiences mm-hmm. across a range of issues. And so I end up doing a program at this stage of my life, like our own breakfast, yeah. where I'm talking politics. And yeah, I, I know I said earlier, I wasn't particularly interested in the news, but I was interested in ideas and debates and, you know, politically contentious ideas mm. and had been through my youth years. But it's also a show where I'm talking about the arts and theatre and music and and I've, all those things have played a part in my life. Um, and sport too. I mean, my first permanent job at the ABC was a cadet uh, as a sports journalist. Mm-hmm. And I, I that's how I, I got a real job in the ABC. So my Triple J job was just a three-month thing that right. we kept extending. But I applied for a cadetship and I got one in sport. So, you know, I have a love of sport as well. So all these elements of my life um, have just fed in to make me the journalist I am and also, I suppose, the radio interviewer I am. Well, it, I think it really reflects in the type of program that RN Breakfast is. Yes, it's you know very much an agenda-setting program that people start their day with to, to really be informed about the issues of the day. You obviously interview a number of different policymakers and leaders, but there's also music and art and culture and sport with Warwick Hadfield and you know all of that. So and that's what makes it the best job in journalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and that you can hear that when you listen to... When you listen to the program, you can hear the joy and the extension of of who it is, of of you are, I guess. You've done just about every audio reporting job available at the ABC. You mentioned that you started in sports. How did you then move across to politics and working uh, working in the Canberra Press Gallery for, I think it was nearly 10 years? Well, I um, am... Yeah, it's probably overstating to say I worked... 
too much in sports for them. It was pretty clear <laughs> early on. Thank, thankfully, the, my boss at the time at, at Grandstand, I loved it. I mean, I love sport. Um, but they saw in something in me that was more suited to current affairs journalism, mm-hmm. and so they suggested that to me. So they nudged you in that Yeah, direction. they nudged me, and so and they nudged me in that direction first through sports. So mm-hmm. I did drugs and sports stories. I went to the Commonwealth Games, and I covered that for um, Triple J. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I, I always had a news angle. That was just how my brain worked. And, and so then I thought, well, you know, they're right. So I applied for Radio Current Affairs, which is the AM and PM programs, mm-hmm. and I got in there, which is an amazing training ground for any young journalist. I mean, it's wonderful. And um, so I went from there. After a couple of years, uh, I went to Canberra because I realised that that was where it was at for me in, in current affairs. That was the sort of the, the front line, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the forward-facing current affairs place to be. So... Um, I was fortunate to get there, yeah. and it was another moment of oh yeah, this 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 works for me. I, I felt like it was a natural fit, which I, surprised me in a way, and but it it was, and it was my natural kind of um, ground, and I stayed there in Parliament House in Canberra for ten years, and I did a range of jobs, like you said, I did AM and PM, and then I moved across to Radio National Breakfast mm-hmm. as their political commentator in the mornings, political editor rather, and did interviews, political interviews there as well, and then I went across. 7.30 report and was mm. the political editor on TV on 7.30 report. So basically what, say, Laura Tingle's sort of doing now. Yeah. That sort of role. Okay, right. Uh, tell us about your first day in Canberra um, or your first week in Canberra. So who was a leader at the time and who was about to be, well, who was about to be deposed, should I say? Yeah, all right. Well, I, I got there for a, fir- a short stint first up and it was the moment when Paul Keating was challenging Bob Hawke. Mm-hmm. And so it was absolutely wild. Like, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. Literally packs of journalists were roaming the corridors of Parliament House, hunting down cabinet ministers, <laughs> trying to get you know who they were going to support um so it was a real moment in time and and I found it completely addictive and just wanted to get back there that was a six-week stint I just wanted to get back there which it took me another year right before I, I arrived and I arrived as it happened on the day that Paul Keating called the 1993 election so I was right into it so yeah that's sort of what sort of whetted my appetite for yeah. it and so you knew you were sort of in the right place. Yeah. So I've, you know, I've interviewed every prime minister since, including Paul Keating. I interviewed Bob Hawke before him, but you know, all, all of them since many times, and it's, um, yeah, it's been fantastic. So you mentioned that you you've interviewed every prime minister since Bob Hawke. And, you know, you've really witnessed the changing tides over the years in terms of public debate and and discourse, but also in the way that politicians really go about sending out their message. And you've really been there for the emergence of talking points. Do you find it's a lot... It's a lot harder to to really hold politicians' feet to the fire now because they seem much more carefully scripted now. There's not that genuine sort of spontaneity that there was before. Do you find it much harder to hold their feet to the fire? Yes and no. Maybe not as risk-averse is Mm. maybe what we're searching for. I think the 24-hour news cycle and the sort of the social media, the pace of it all, has made politicians pretty nervous because if if you put a foot wrong, it's picked up in an instant and Mm. amplified and off it's gone and it's Mm. it's often racing and it overtakes whatever policy you're announcing. Or So I think that has really been a contributor to making our politicians more cautious. That's what's led to the talking points. Mm. You know, that wasn't quite... but, But then again, the talking points are also required out of unity in a sense because when I started, politicians were risk-averse in a different way. They didn't give so many interviews. There right. weren't so many form- formats to give interviews on for a change. But to get an interview with Prime Minister Paul Keating at the time was very rare. 
And it was really only John Howard who changed it up a bit when he came in. He decided he wanted to take the power away from the press gallery and go out to local radio and speak more directly to people Mm -hmm. on local radio interviews where he got questioned less and could talk more and influence more. So he was sort of, you know, he he became a regular on some of the commercial radios, for instance. Mm -hmm. So there was more access to him. So that, that was a change. But up until then, you didn't hear that much from them. You'd get the doorstops. And you'd have fewer politicians um, being accountable. You know, most of them didn't do interviews at all. I remember when I was a young journalist in in the press gallery and I was interviewing a cabinet minister, and that was quite a rare event still. So it's really changed. The access politician Mm -hmm. has become much more accessible. Um, The demands on them, media demands, much more Mm. intense. And so in some ways they're more accountable because they're before us more often, but what's come with that is this sort of, you know, appetite for risk has really diminished, so they're much more careful about what they say, and that's why you hear them not really answering questions so much, and we're hearing the same lines coming out of six politicians mm. on the same day. It's, you know, it's it's unfortunate, I think. Do you think, though, the constant demands of interviews and media access, do you think it really affects the way that they're able to really focus on the task at hand and I the do. way they shape policy? And I do. I mean, I think it's obvious if you're doing seven interviews in, in mm. a day and you're a political leader or a senior policy minister, mm. you've, you've got less time to be talking with your team and, and your advisors and thinking for yourself about policy development. Mm. I mean, it stands to reason. I'm not saying politicians shouldn't be accountable to us through media appearances. Of course they do. They need to front up. They need to be questioned, held to account, give their account. But I do think that the rigours of the 24-hour cycle has must have – I think it must have had an impact on their capacity to think about and develop policy. And the policies they are developing, it's 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 instinct, isn't it? It's human nature to be developing within mind of how's this going to go down with the mob? How am I going to get questioned on this? So I, I think there's an impact there that is probably deleterious. I, I can't measure it. I can't give you proof of that, but I just think it's it's natural. So then, how do you how do you get them to deviate away from? The not very well. Points? Some of my listeners would say, Tina, not very well. Well, I'm a listener, and I disagree with that. <laughs> Look, sometimes you've got to keep at it. I'm not one really for coming back with the same question five times and saying you haven't answered my question. That's yeah. not my style. I tend to think that the audience is in educated enough, smart enough, street smart Mm -hmm. enough to know when someone's dodging a question Mm. and make up their own mind. But uh, more and more the audiences let me know they would like me to hold the feet to the flame a bit more. So I've been doing that a bit more, often invoking the audience, saying, Mm -hmm. look, you know, the audience wants to know. Mm -hmm. And I find that makes it a bit more difficult for the politician to evade the answer. But it is frustrating and sometimes you just don't get the answer. And sometimes if you keep pressing, you do. And that's a magic moment of radio. Do you... I think we have, as a as an electorate and as a populist, do you think we have an even lesser understanding of policy nowadays than ever before? I mean, we seem to be very caught up in the politics of politics and not the actual policy that we probably should be discussing. Well, I do, but I'm not sure that many of us ever did. I, I know when you asked me before about my first week in Canberra, I remember I'd been there about a month mm-hmm. and I said to the bureau chief, who's an old stager, been around for a long time, I said to him... 
I don't understand this. All we ever talk about is the politics. No one ever talks about the policy. And he looked at me like, are you crazy? And he said, leave the policy to the Fin Review. Your job is to get a handle on the politics and convey that to people. And that was a real lesson for me. And that was a long time ago. So this is not a a new thing, I don't think. It was sometimes you go to other countries. I remember when I was a Europe correspondent based in London. Mm. And one thing I particularly noticed um, about some other cultures, the Greeks too, I was spent a long time there in preparation for the Athens Olympics, is how some other societies are more engaged in policy debates. Mm. It's just more part of their culture. It's not that they're smarter or more sophisticated. It's just what they talk about. Mm-hmm. And here in Australia, I don't know that we ever have been as much. Mm. Getting a little bit back to, so we were we sort of left off on talking about your career trajectory. Your first experience with RN Breakfast was really filing for them as as the Canberra political correspondent mm-hmm. uh, in 1997. And Peter Thompson, who was the founding host of, of RN Breakfast, was was then leading the program. And then he left uh, sometime around the millennium. Vivian Schenker came in for a couple of years. And then he, he of course, came back. Was it then that you went over? You were over in Europe during that period. I was only in Europe for a couple of years. So yeah, I le- I stayed on RN Breakfast as their political editor okay. in the mornings there in Parliament House for three years. In two thousand, I jumped across to seven thirty, right, and that's where I learnt television. And I did that for nearly three years, and then I I got the Europe gig, and I moved to London for two years. Okay, and when I was in London, Peter had decided to hang up his boots, and um, I got the call offering yeah. me the job, and my partner at the time just thought I'd say no because the Europe <laughs> gig was so, so much fun and so satisfying and yeah. had such great opportunity within it. Mm. But, you know, I I loved the program and especially after two years in London listening to the BBC and the Today Show, mm-hmm. which is really the model that mm. RM Breakfast is based on mm-hmm. and it is such an agenda-setting program. Every journalist had to listen to it. I just thought, I really want that chance. So, yeah, it was a no-brainer for me. I'd worked with Peter as a very baby journalist. He was the host, the presenter of AM when I joined Current Affairs. So I'd already learnt a lot under Peter. Then he went off to start this new program, which was Mm -hmm. RM Breakfast. Mm -hmm. And um, so our paths crossed many times. Right. When you were were filing as RM Breakfast's uh, political correspondent, were you already sort of going, God, I'd I'd love Peter's job. He's got the best job in the world. No, not really. I didn't because it... Because I knew the breadth it required, it really wasn't until I went overseas, mm-hmm. which changed my my scope, I suppose. Um, you know, I'd been very politics focused. Mm-hmm. And I don't think what you don't want for a job like our own breakfast is someone who's just zeroed in mm-hmm. on politics. Mm-hmm. So it was really when I went to Europe and I was forced to engage with the world, mm. look at the world, and also you're filing across a whole country. So you're feeding in back to Australia, you know, a, a taste of everything mm-hmm. from from Europe. It might be foreign affairs. It might be uh, a sporting carnival, you know, an Olympic Games. I covered an Olympic Games, which I absolutely loved. It could be anything. So, you know, I broadened out again, and that's really what gave me, I think, the capacity and the, and the confidence to say yes to the gig. And, and that, of course, took place in 2005. So you, you started hosting Radio National Breakfast in 2005. 17 years ago. 17 years. And so you've just come back from London to, to take on this, what you call the best job in journalism. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for you to adapt to those 3.30 a.m. starts? Oh, well, that was okay, actually, for some weird okay. reason. It's not that I used to get up at 3.30 or anything, but I, I've always been, since a kid, a morning mm-hmm. person. I could never... 
you know, I could never at parties. I'd sort of often just fall asleep against the wall at midnight. Like that was I was not a night owl. Um, You're talking about you're a rock star. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> funny, isn't it? There you go. So. I function well in the mornings, right. but getting up at three thirty—I mean, that's a that's a jolt to anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't think you ever get used to it. To be honest, people mm-hmm. say, "Oh, you get used to it." No, you don't. Getting up before five, I think, is not natural for a human mm-hmm. being, and and also my job is a split shift very much. You mm-hmm. have to work both ends of the day, so it's particularly um, arduous, and I, you just never get used to it. What you do get used to is being exhausted and operating under a cloud of exhaustion a lot of the time and spending quite a few weekends every year in your pyjamas. You're listening to Fourth Estate on the Community Radio Network and my guest is Fran Kelly. You you mentioned it being a split shift. I don't think a lot of people realise how much they, they think, oh, but you're just on, what a great job you've got. You're just on air for three hours and it's it's a very mm-hmm. different. Tell us about what's a day look yeah, like. Yeah, okay. Well, I get up end. at 3.30, I get to work at about quarter to five. Mm-hmm. I'm on air at six. So that's a pretty intense, you know, from the time I get into mm-hmm. the office, it's a fairly intense getting across all the news, newspapers, news sites, hit the ground running at six. That's if you don't have a pre-record before then. Mm-hmm. Then you're off air at nine and then you breathe for a moment and then you have an editorial meeting at 10 mm-hmm. and you get the shape of the day and I'm also talking to my political editor who's up she's up at very early 1:32 in the morning to prep the interviews so when she's come off air when I come off air she's already set up a few ideas for the next day mm-hmm. so we have that discussion because the other thing that's happened in journalism through this time is it's a crowded field now there are more programs there's 24-hour news networks there they've got shows running all day so if you want you know, you you set your sights on an interview. You've got to get in early to to bank it. Otherwise, you know, someone else will get it. Mm. Um, so she gets that going, and we talk about that. We have an editorial meeting, and then you know, I get home sometime in the middle of the day and have a bit of downtime, have a nap, and then I from four o'clock on, I'm on deck again, talking to my executive producer, talking to my political editor getting across all the news and then in the evening reading the briefs that the the breakfast team, who is an incredible team of journalists, they, they work on stories through the day and they produce mm-hmm. a, a couple of pages of a brief, a backgrounder for me, and I'm reading all of those so I'm prepped for the interview in the morning. So extremely arduous, it sounds. Well, just full on. Yeah. You know, yeah. arduous, some days arduous, yes. um, but it's certainly demanding. Over the past 17 years, how do you think the program has, has changed under under your leadership? I mean, do, do you feel like you've uh, given it a slightly different identity to, to what it had before with, say, either you know Peter Thompson or, or Vivian Schenker? It, what I did um, when I came was to change the style of the show into uh, – news is not right the word, but, um, you know, we wanted to be making sure – it's an agenda-setting time slot – and we wanted to set the agenda. So that meant really, I knew what that meant. We had to get politicians onto the program. Mm-hmm. And under Peter in his second stint, it had, it had become very, um, there'd been a lot of in-depth discussions, tremendous discussions, tremendous range of guests from around the world and around the country, but less newsmaking mm-hmm. in a way, because that was Peter's forte. What my forte is, is political interviewing. Mm-hmm. And so we brought that back to the program. And our mission was to try and get all the sort of the policymakers, the opinion leaders onto our program, mm. as I said before, to hold them to account. You know, that was that was the point. That was the brief of the program. So that was the mission. It was a mission I was really, you know, comfortable with. And I think we've done it really, really well. 
So it's a it's a different program than Peter had. Um, the audience loved Peter enormously. It took them a long time to adjust to me, um, and I'm sure some of them never did. Um, but it was a different brief. I came in with a different brief. Right. Do you feel like you were actually given freedom to sort of make it your own? Very much. I mean, I, I played a real editorial leadership in the in the show since I got there. I gathered a team and and I led the team, um, ably assisted um, by some tremendous executive producers. You know, the first executive producer worked with me, Timothy Latham. We worked together for seven years. He really, really shaped the program. He, he really helped me be a better presenter. He he really was fantastic and set the program up to be what it was. And since then, we've had a number of, including now, sent terrific executive producers and, and they're great editorial leaders. And between us, you know, I think, you know, and 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 the, and the very hard-working team. I mean, to work on our program, they're often young journalists, but they really work hard and, and produce a lot of stories every day, which is required for two and a half hours of radio. And I, I can't speak highly enough of the journalists we've had and the executive producers we have. I've been really, really blessed. So as we've mentioned and as we've touched on, RN Breakfast is, is more than just politics. You know, you really run the gamut of international news to state and, and local base coverage. And of course, you cover other topics like the arts and science and sport. What are the non-political aspects of the job that you're going to miss the most? Um I'm going to miss them particularly. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the program is the breadth of the program. Yeah. And sometimes at night, you know, I get to I get to work and I'm, you know, I get to my desk at home to go through my briefs and I'm feeling a little tired and and then I just start reading the material that we're going to be talking about the next day and I get so excited by the ideas and the the talent that we've got and the de- the range of the debates we're engaged in it's just exhilarating and uh, that might sound a little bit naff but it actually is i love i love skipping across the the biggest international news stories of the day which which is where we usually kick off and then i love having live music and mm. and bands at the other end of the da- at the other end of the program and in between time the big social issues i always say to the team you know what what we need to be talking about here is what you're talking about with your friends, is what you're talking about on social media. You know, it's not just the things we should think we should be talking about. Like, it's not a program to just discuss, I don't know, climate change or Indigenous affairs or, or whatever it is. It's everything you're talking about. That's what people want to hear. And so that's a very exciting brief to have. And it's been a very exciting show to present. The scrutiny on the ABC has only increased in, in recent years. You've, you, we've mentioned social media and Twitter. There's sort of particular means that you're constantly being critiqued through and it's, a, it's a, not always a very kind lens. It's often quite abusive, actually, Just and you get abused for just doing your job. How, how do you manage that sort of attention and scrutiny? Because a lot of people, I mean, Lisa Miller, for instance, has, has left Twitter because it just it got, it got a bit too much and too distracting from well, her actual role. Well, it's probably a, a weakness of mine, but I never really went there. I never engaged in it too much for partly for that reason, because I don't have a thick hide particularly. <laughs> I say to my friends, Twitter hates me. Um, <laughs> there's not a lot of love for me on Twitter, but that's probably because I haven't engaged too much either. I'm happy to hear criticism. I really am. And, mm. it, and it comes to me anyway, and it comes through the text line quite heavily. Um, and I'm looking at the Twitter feed as the show goes to air. So it comes to me and I'm not frightened of it, but I don't particularly want to engage. I've got so much to do that it's not really helpful and useful for me to be sort of diverted too much. I'm happy to engage in ideas and often there'll be 
you know, input into an interview or criticisms of something I've done and I go, yeah, they're right. And that makes me better. And I try and incorporate that where I think it's, you know, it's, it's true and it's valid. So I like to use it like that as a tool, mm. but I just decided early on, I just couldn't divert my energy really yeah. there too much. And it is hurtful. And there have been times when I've been absolutely hammered and it can flatten you if you're not careful. And if I didn't have loving family and friends, I would have been flattened. Mm. So I think it's horrible what happens to people, some of my dear friends and colleagues. And I guess I've just kind of tried to keep myself out of that as much as I could. Mm. It really is horrible. And I wish people would keep that in mind when they send... Sometimes I read something, I go, really? You think you can say that to to me or to anybody? And you know, they wouldn't say it to somebody's face. And I'm, I'm just stunned, really by the things that people unleash, presumably without any sense of the impact it's going to have at the other end when it hits. Best to sort of look, you know, if you're looking for constructive criticism, you look to to places where you know it's actually coming from a constructive area. Like I hear your partner can will, will sometimes text you, and, text you and go, oh, I think you could have gone harder there or why didn't you ask him She this? can dish it out, that's for sure, but I have a lot of respect for her journalistic uh, instincts, so it's usually pretty good. It's usually well placed, yeah. yes, exactly. Now, you've really got a reputation for, for being able to maintain your equanimity during interviews. Now, I don't think this was ever more clearly on display than during the same-sex marriage debate that we had in this country a number of years ago. As someone who has a background in activism as well, adding that component into it, what was it like to, to sit across from people, to interview people who are anti-same-sex marriage during the plebiscite? Well, that one was really difficult for me because it was really personal. Yeah. And, you know, you're sitting, as we are now, very close mm. to people and they're actually saying things that are mm. uh, delivered really at you and your lifestyle and your parenting style and your family choices. So that was very personal. Mm. But look, I mean, I've been a journalist for a long time and I didn't get to journalism till I was nearly 30. Before then, I'd been engaged, as I say, and you know, all the big protests and, uh, you know, that was the person I am. I was very involved in the women's movement in particular. Um, so I, I had that level of acti- activism. But when you become a journalist, one of the things you have to learn is objectivity. I mean, I haven't been on a protest march since then mm. because it's just not Right. Yeah, I feel it's appropriate. It's not appropriate. Mm. And and I think that was a really important lesson for me to learn. So I'm confident I've brought objectivity to the role mm. and balance to the role because it's it's a craft, it's a discipline. That's what the role is. It's not it's not a folly. It's not for me to just spruik. You know, I'm trying to deli- help people get more informed. That's that's our role, to help inform people and get answers to the things they need to know and the questions they want asked. And you don't want to betray, I guess, your audience's trust because if they know that you're trying to push a particular yeah. agenda. I mean, it's not to say we don't focus on issues. Mm. You know, when I came back from overseas, I could see that the climate debate in overseas was very well advanced and mm. and much further advanced than it was here in Australia where we were stuck, where we'd been stuck for 10 years. And, you know, I said to my team, I think we need to help the audience, help Australia with this, help the audience. Let's go out to the world and get the best voices, the leading thinkers, the scientists and, and others who are contributing to these debates and bring them to breakfast. That's that's a service we can do people. And I think we did do that well, you know, and and the same goes for, you know, Indigenous affairs. There's only, you know, not every media outlet focuses on it. 
it's 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 so important for our national debate, so important for our nation, that I thought it was you know part of our role to bring keep bringing those issues and those debates, not because I'm pushing them, but because they're fundamental and people need to hear about them. And if if not on our two and a half hour show, we have the luxury of time every morning, then where? Are there any interviews that stand out to you over the past? So I know we're talking seventeen years. It's but what are the ones that have really stood this out? This is the hardest mind? question. Yeah. I never know the answer to this. Who's your favourite child? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. it is a bit like that. And and some of the the interviews and it seems a funny thing to say, but sometimes I can't remember mm. the interviews I did last week, mm. let alone seventeen years ago. But I suppose the ones that have really I mentioned before that sometimes during an interview. I'd well up with tears. So it's the human stories. It's talking to people after the, literally the first person they've spoken to when they've seen their, what the, the floods and the cyclones have done to their homes or their banana crops. And it's like gut-wrenching. Or very recently, you know, I spoke to the young woman who was holed up in Kabul with oh, yeah. 13 other young women um, hiding, literally hiding from the Taliban because they were frightened for their lives. They were frightened that the Taliban would take them to be brides for their fighters, which is what's happening. Um, she was leading a women's group, uh, you know, working with the young women to, to turn them into female leaders so they were frightened about how the Taliban would view the work she's been doing. She... Uh, we couldn't say a name when we interviewed her that day, but the terror in her voice. I mean, the the audience just responded overwhelmingly to that. We we next time we talked to her, she'd made her way out with many of those young women and her family out of Kabul, and she was in Pakistan waiting to come, um, hoping to come to Australia. We could say her name. It was Mawa, and now Mawa is in Sydney, and I got to talk to her here too. So that was, you know, that was that was fa- fabulous. So there was a huge amount of support and I guess you could almost say grief, really, when, when you announced that you would be stepping down as, as host of RN Breakfast. How do you reckon with your public profile? When when Peter Thompson left the show in 2005, I doubt there was the same sort of an outcry that there has been since since your announcement. Uh- Look, I, I can't compare, and because there wasn't social media, I was just speaking to a colleague whose uh, parent was uh, in the media for a long mm. time, and when they left, she said um, they got something like 2,000 handwritten letters and cards. This is pre-social media. That's that's what I call an outpouring. I mean, mm. it's, it's much easier to send off a text or a tweet than it is to write a card walk across the post office and post it. Um, so, as I say, Peter was much loved and the audience let me know that mm. loud and clear. And I know that, I knew that about him because we'd worked for, for many years together and I was, you know, a big admirer and people just loved Peter as a conversationalist. Yeah. So, you know, I, I can't compare, but w- one thing I will say is that I was not prepared for the 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 wonderful, the gorgeous response I got when I announced I was leaving and mm. it really helped me because it was a huge, difficult decision to make. I took a long time to make it. It was quite emotional saying it out loud. So, you know, I just want to thank everyone who's sent me back love in return. I've really appreciated it and it's really helped me. Part of the outpouring, I think, has been that people feel is that they know you, you know, as they're sort of getting ready for their day, as, you know, the coffee plungers are, are getting into gear and, and, and people are driving to work. They feel as if they know you. And I think that's the, the real beauty and the intimacy of, of radio or, or audio. Is that part of the appeal for you working as a presenter? 
It is. I love radio. I mean, it's where I started, and your know, audio, as we call it now. Yes, I know. And and but you know, it is. It's true because I get the same kind of feedback and relationship building. I think through the party room, through the podcast mm-hmm. I do with Patricia Carvelis. You know, people feel like they're your friend, and and that's been really clear to me in in the in the messages I've been getting, and particularly through the podcast. I think mm. people really appreciated and and let me know it. Um, well, they let me know how they were feeling. They really, during lockdowns, people were quite frightened and they actually reached out in a way they hadn't before. And so I tried to respond to that and help them with facts every morning mm-hmm. and to sort of calm things down for people. But in, in this response at the end here, a lot of people letting me know that, you know, through COVID, um, oh, sometimes I'd be the only person they'd speak to in the day. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people telling me lovely stories about how they they, they, they think I'm their friend because I'm with them in the morning, every morning. And that's just lovely. It's it's a huge responsibility, but mostly it's lovely. And I think it's something special about radio. You mentioned the party room. Your your colleague and fellow presenter on the Party Room podcast, Patricia Carvelis, has been announced as of yesterday, it was announced that uh, she'd be taking over the breakfast slot. Do you feel like it's in... You're leaving the baton in in very capable hands. Oh, of course I do. I mean, yeah, I think it's a, it's terrific. I think she'll do a great job. Um, As you yourself said, it's precious cargo that you're handing over. It is precious cargo, and I've worked really, really hard. And I, I've, I don't think I'm overstating it. So I've dedicated the last 17 years to, to making RM Breakfast what it is. But you know, PK loves the show. Mm. Um, we've talked. You know, she's she's. Wanted to do the show, which why wouldn't you? You know, mm. it's a gender-setting radio, and she should want to do it. Um, and she'll be good at it. She brings an enormous amount of energy. She's—I don't know if you've ever met Patricia, but she's hugely energetic. And this show demands a lot of energy and a lot of warmth. And she's also a political animal. And we're heading into election year. You know, she's going to be great. It's been announced that you'll be back at the ABC next year after a breather in some capacity. It hasn't really been announced yet. Do you have any plans on what that will entail? I know I know you can't really say, but is there a taster that we could maybe? No, look, I think I'm st- it's still a work in progress. I, I just need to – this job is so demanding, yeah. it's hard to get the thinking time. Yeah. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to take a breather. Depending on when the election is called, I'll come back for the election because – kind of what I do. Yeah. Um, and that's the even the shape of that still being worked out. So I've got an we exciting br- program for yeah. later in the year that I'm working on, but um, nice. I can't tell you. Well, we'll breathe easier knowing that you'll be back for the federal election. So that's good. I couldn't imagine one without Frank Kelly. Um, and any any plans for Toxic Shock to reunite? Well, probably not Toxic Shock because they're all in Melbourne. <laughs> um, but, you know, I would love nothing more than to say, hey, Fran, do you want to come sing in a band? That would be, there's nothing more fun than that. Let me tell you, if you get a chance, do it. What do you think, what do you think you're going to be keeping an eye on in your future work? Obviously, you've mentioned the federal election is coming up. You're always going to have that that foot in politics. I think what I'm very engaged in through my work and therefore has led me to a personal engagement is the climate debate and how we change our lives because it will require change. And some of it will be gradual and, and many of us are already keen. You know, the government's getting the feedback about electric vehicles. That's why they've changed their policy. Well, in part because they need to because transport, you know, contributes so much in terms of our emissions. So we need to electrify um, the transport systems, but also the public want it. The public like recycling. The public like solar panels. You know, we've had the highest uptake of solar panels than any other country in the world. So, you know, some of it we go to gladly. Some 
some of change will probably be forced upon us. And I don't even think we can quite see that yet or understand that. But mm. I'm interested to see where it goes and and how effective the leadership is and how quickly it changes. I want to be around in, in the carbon neutral world. I think many of us do. And the other thing I'm passionate about is to see how we go about finally getting constitutional recognition for Indigenous Australians. I mean, that's been um, apparently a government goal since John Howard's time. We haven't got there. The resistance seems no less to me in, in the parliamentary sphere. The political leaders don't seem to trust that the public is really behind it in in a way enough that they would risk a referendum. I'm not sure they're right about that, but it's it's critical for us as a nation that we come to terms with how we were formed and the impact that's had on the first Australians and I think if we can if we can make that step and bring in that recognition, it will do a lot to start the healing which has to happen because you know, look at what's brought to bear upon indigenous Australians. I mean, it's just not right, it's not fair, and we've got to fix it, and and it will make us a better country. I think many of us would agree with you. Fran Kelly, a big thank you for coming in today on your last week at RN Breakfast, and a big thank you for for everything that you've done, not just over the past 17 years for, for us, the listener, but more broadly speaking, how you've advocated for us, the public, over the last number of decades. You've already left such an incredible legacy, especially for those of us who are part of the Fourth Estate. Having you in today, it's been such a thrill and such an honour, and I'm really going to miss tuning into you every morning wow. uh, at RM Breakfast. So. Tina, thank you. I'm going to miss you and every other listener, and I know it sounds corny, but it's absolutely true. I loved every minute of it. I'm glad to hear. Thank you for joining us on Fourth Estate. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. A big thanks, as always, to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. Please do stay well and stay safe, and catch us next week on Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate.